0: Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Steph. Awesome. Good morning. My name is Mandy Oliai, and I am excited to be here with you this morning. I am on staff with City Church as the house group's director. So if you're not plugged into a house group, I would love to talk to you after service in the family room. So uh, yeah, this morning we are wrapping up our Wholehearted Family series. And the question we've been asking around this series is, what if at the end of the year we loved knew, and experience Jesus more than we ever have. And I really believe that having friends like family will help us love, know, and experience Jesus more. And here at City Church, it's our desire to cultivate the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world. And I just want to say a quick reminder that when we talk about family, we mean the nuclear and non-nuclear community and friends that feel like family. Specifically this morning when I'm referencing family, I mean all of us in this room here together. So this morning, I want to take a really quick look at John 15, because 10 minutes is challenging. Um, So in John 15, the beginning of John 15, uh, it's the vine and the branches, and Jesus is encouraging us to remain in him, to bear much fruit. God is the good gardener who's cultivating the soil, pruning the branches to foster growth and better fruit. Jesus then encourages us to remain in his love and to keep his commands so that our joy may be made complete. Now, picking up in verse 12, Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So Jesus says, follow my commands so that your joy may be made complete. Then he says, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, when I hear this, I'm kind of like, okay, Jesus, that sounds great in theory, to lay down my life for my friends, but what does that actually practically mean? However, back in the day for the Romans, who might have heard this, they would have interpreted it very differently. For them, laying down your life was a very honoring thing to do for one another. Dying for others was considered heroic in Roman stories, and friendship to the death was a high moral value. So for the Romans, it was an honor to sacrifice your life for someone else. So I started wondering, like, what if I, or what if we saw this passage a little bit differently? What if we saw it as an honor to lay down our lives for one another in order to cultivate the kind of family that Jesus introduced to the world? And I think we need to do that. Like, maybe it doesn't actually mean we're going to die for one another, but, like, I can give up some time this afternoon to hang out with you. Um, That is laying down my life to honor one another. Adele Calhoun is one of my favorite authors, and she has mentored me so much through her books and her writings. And she defines community this way. Christian community exists when believers connect with each other in authentic and loving ways that encourage growth in Christ. They engage in transparent relationships that cultivate, celebrate, and make evident Christ's love for all the world. It's a great quote, and the word cultivate came up again. And cultivate's kind of been a trendy word thrown around in the church world lately. Um, so I was like, let me, let me look it up to make sure I'm understanding what cultivate really means. Um, and so to cultivate is to prepare and use for the raising of crops, to foster the growth of, to improve by labor, care, or study. So looking at the definition, cultivate isn't passive. It takes work. You're going to improve by labor, care, or study. So I am in this, my second year of gardening, like right at the very beginning of my second year of gardening, and it is really fun, and it's been good for me, and having the fresh fruits and vegetables is great. However, like 90% of the time that I'm in the garden or thinking about the garden, I'm concerned about the soil and what's going on with the soil, and how can I help it be better to produce better plants and then better fruit. Uh, we carefully amend the soil, My husband just sent off a soil sample test to a university so we can figure out what's really going on in there. I've watched more YouTube videos on gardening than I care to admit. Um, We've read the books and the blogs, asked questions at a local nursery, and of friends who are far more experienced with gardening than I am. So we've been putting in the work to try to cultivate and care for the soil that will help produce better plants and ultimately lead to better fruit. An interesting thing that I came across when I was looking up the definition of cultivate is actually the antonym, the opposite of cultivate, is to lose. And lose means to bring destruction, to miss from one's possession, to fail to keep, sustain, or maintain. So if we aren't actively cultivating X, we're going to lose it. If I'm not actively cultivating and taking care of my garden, it's going to die, or at least it's going to be a hot mess full of weeds. If we aren't cultivating family, we're going to lose it. And to me, looking at these definitions, there's no real middle ground here. Either we're cultivating or we're losing. I can't be passive in my garden and expect to have fruits and vegetables grow. And I can't be passive in my friendships and expect good things to grow. Cultivating friendships that turn into family is going to take some work, and that's the word that I feel like the Lord has for our, our church family this morning, is to lean in and to do the cultivating work so that we can continue to have friends that feel like family. And this is sacrificial, laying down our lives for one another and honoring each other. And I think this is a particular challenge for the church compared to other institutions like school or work, because at school and work, you're, you're there all day, well or you're online with them all day, um, and you're, you're with them, you see them. There's more opportunities to like bump shoulders and to get to know each other. However, here at church, like we're lucky if we see each other Sunday mornings every month um, for a few minutes after service. And honestly, that's just not enough time to cultivate friends into family. Here at City Church, we are a church with two front doors. If you look at our logo, you'll see that there's two doors on it And that was very intentional. One door represents our Sunday mornings and the other door represents our house groups. And while both doors are equally important, there are some things that we can do better together on Sunday morning, like listen to our amazing worship team and hear a great message and be together corporately. And there are things that we can do better together in our house groups, like have dinner together and study the word together and serve and pray with one another. Um, I really believe like in our house groups, that's where we have the time for like the organic friendships to form and really get to know each other and cultivate family. So in June of 2020, uh, my husband Ben and I sold our house. We packed up our car. Oh, that is really blurry. And <laughs> moved, to, moved to Cincinnati. So that's not what it looks like on my computer, but you can see Ben's shoulder. Uh, Zeke is in the back. <laughs> Our six-week-old baby is in the car, our giant golden retriever, our cat, and even my grandma's plant. Like these were all the things that were alive that had to make it out here in a week. <laughs> um, and we, we had come and visited a couple times in 2019. We were hearing about the dreams for City Church, especially around family, and it really pulled at our hearts. Now, we had been living in Vegas for quite a few years and things were pretty good. Um, we both had really great jobs, really loved my job there. Our girls really loved their school. Uh, we had an amazing home, and Vegas was really comfortable, and Vegas has some really good food. Um, so we, we were pretty comfortable in Las Vegas. However, um, on both sides of Benz and my family, we had experienced some pretty close deaths in our families um, and a lot of brokenness. A lot of our friends in Vegas were starting to move away. Vegas is a very transient city. Um, and the church we were attending at the time was dying. We were hungry for something new curi- and curious enough to know and want to know if friends like family could re- actually be a possibility. So we felt like the Lord was calling us out here, packed up our car, and we moved here with a desire to help cultivate friends like family. And I wish I could tell you, it's been super easy and rainbows and unicorns the whole time, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of time. Once we landed here and the Lord blessed us with an amazing house here, we knew that it was a gift for us to share with our community. We've hosted several events, had friends over for dinner or just to hang out. Um, A frequent prayer is that in in the midst of our chaos, there's six of us that live there, the dog and the cat, that in the midst of all the busyness in our house, that people would feel a presence of peace when they come over. Um, We've been hosting group for two years, and I mentioned, like, yeah, we've been hosting and opening up our house, and that's not, like, an easy thing to do when you've got four kids and a dog and messes everywhere. Um, That is us, like, laying down part of our lives for our community. Um... But we've been hosting House Group and I love my House Group so much, so thankful for them. And honestly, there are times when Tuesday night rolls around and I'm like, man, I wish I could just zone out tonight and um, sit in my sweatpants and watch TV. But because House Group is at my house, it would be a little awkward for me to just be chilling in my room while everyone's downstairs doing Bible study. Um, So I go. I attend, I lean in, and I cultivate friends like family during house group. And after every single group, I'm so thankful that the Lord has brought friends that feel like family into my life, and that He's filling up my cup through my house group and my friends. Okay, so sometimes cultivating family means you you go to house group when you're tired and you don't feel like it. Um, sometimes it means you go to the birthday party or the game night when you don't really like board games, or the sporting event when you have no idea what's going on with this sport. Um, Sometimes cultivating family means you're the one to open up your house for an event. Maybe you're the one to initiate the group volleyball game. Maybe you're the one to go say hi to someone new in the family room. Cultivating family means that we are creating space to invite others in, and we say yes to the things that we're invited to. So as the house group's director, this is where I get to make a little plug for you to join a group. If you aren't in a group and you're looking for community, I really want to challenge you to get plugged into one. If you're not in a group, you're missing out on what half of our church has to offer. In two weeks, our groups are going to pick back up for our summer series that is for seven weeks. So I wanted to, And they're going to be really fun. We've told all of our house group leaders, have lots of fun, go play volleyball, have barbecues. Um, So this is a really great time to get plugged into a house group. So I want to challenge you to go for for seven weeks, a couple hours each week. And I want to invite Brandon up for our next slam, but I also want to remind us, if we aren't cultivating family, we're going to lose it.
1: Uh, Thank you, Mandy, for that wonderful reminder that cultivating family takes intentionality and work. Um, My hope for today is to talk about one specific way that we can cultivate family. Uh, But first, I'll go ahead and introduce myself. My name is Brandon. I've been around this community for a while. Um, But if you don't recognize my face, you might recognize my name from underneath the quote, don't be afraid to define the relationship. So if you've had a series of awkward conversations and you're not sure why, that's on me. Um, But as I said, what I'm hoping to do today is to um, break down one specific way we can cultivate family, and that step is by taking steps of faith in community. To do that, I want to backtrack just a little bit back to July of last year. We're in our series in Acts, and specifically in Acts 10. Acts 10 focuses on two main characters. We've got Cornelius, and we've got Peter. And I'll just run through this story of what happens for you. Cornelius is in Caesarea. And he gets a visit from an angel of God who tells him to send men to get Peter from Joppa and to bring him to Caesarea. So Cornelius sends those men to Peter. And then on the flip side, Peter receives a vision from the Lord uh, that's rather confusing to him. He gets a vision about things that were previously unclean being made clean. And then a couple hours later, he gets a word from the Lord that says, There's men at your gate. Go with them to Caesarea. So Peter gathers men from Joppa and they go together to Caesarea where Cornelius has gathered people in his household to hear what Peter has to say. Peter then shares the gospel with these individuals in Caesarea, uh, the men of Cornelius' household. And what results there is a miracle that has radical implications to this day. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles for the first time. That in itself radically changes... um, The life that we live today, uh, but we're going to continue on in the story. Peter then takes that experience and goes back to Jerusalem and gets in an argument with the other believers that are there. The argument centers around this idea that, um, do you need to be circumcised to enter into the faith? Well, Peter has this experience in Caesarea that kind of shifts the understanding of what would have been. So what Peter does in this argument is he recants that whole story that I just told you. But he wraps it up with this statement. And it's Acts 11:15 through 17. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them, just as on us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? And I want to focus on one specific word here. It's therefore. You've probably heard it said that if there's a therefore in scripture, you should probably ask, what is it therefore? And to me, what I see in this therefore is a shift in Peter's understanding. Peter now has a deep personal understanding of God's creation. He's able to correlate the vision, the word from Jesus about the Holy Spirit coming, and the, uh, the incident of the Holy Spirit falling because of what he's seen. Peter writes um, that he now has an understanding that God has no favoritism. He understands that salvation is for all people, and the Spirit of God is for all believers. And he recants all that to uh, the people in Jerusalem, and then in verse 18, we get the response of the people hearing this testimony. Verse 18 reads, when they heard this, they became silent. Then they glorified God, saying, so God has granted repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. There's a shift in the hearts and understanding of the people in Jerusalem that is the direct result of God showing up and the Holy Spirit falling on the men in Caesarea. So my main point today is this. It's when we respond to God, he shows up in a way that results in his glory. Because those men, they glorified God at that understanding that they received. If we look back at what Peter and Cornelius did, everything that led to that event of the Holy Spirit falling was a step of faith. If we take a look the angel of God, Cornelius, believed him. He then sent men to Joppa, and he gathered people together in his home. Peter recognized that the vision was from the Lord. He went down to the gate to meet men. He brought people with him to Caesarea, and then he shared the gospel with them. Every act, every action was a step of faith, believing God, a response to what God was doing. I'm blessed enough to have a few stories in my life with a similar outcome, the most pressing of which begins in 2017 when I was a barista at Starbucks. I worked at the Fourth & Vine store downtown. And the thing you need to know about Starbucks at Fourth & Vine is that it's in an old bank. And they have decided to put their stock room in the vault, which is pretty cool except for the fact that the vault is two stories underground. So whenever we would need product, we would have to run downstairs, grab it, and run back upstairs. So me being my 21-year-old self who's eager to make my boss super happy and show off that I'm super strong. I run downstairs, I grab six gallons of milk, and I run back up as fast as I can. And luckily, the thing that you're expecting to happen of me tripping and throwing the milk everywhere did not happen. But what did happen is I blew out my knee. And that knee hurt me for the next year and a half. Specifically, it would flare up every time I would travel, uh, anytime there was an altitude change or in a car for a long period of times. It would bring me to tears, it hurt so bad around this time i was beginning to learn about healing prayer and what that looked like and so i was asking everybody in my life to pray for my knee unfortunately that never came until about a year after the incident when i'm interning for the vineyard northwest and i'm at a ministry event uh, in their youth group and i go up to this group of four people who are praying and the youth leader he prays for me and nothing happens the next two people they pray for me and nothing happens and then the last person goes to pray for me and he's a 12 year old boy with a deep uncertainty in his face and to be honest, I have a lot of deep uncertainty in this moment too because I don't really understand healing prayer but this boy, he puts his hand on my knee he prays a brief little prayer there's a pop and my knee was healed you see, I now have an understanding based upon that event just beyond knowing that God wants to interact with us because he's done it in my life my knee was broken and now it's not and nothing can take that away from me and the fun part about this is that Jesus gets all the glory because there's nothing I could have done that could have resulted in that healing you see I responded to the Lord's prompting and went up to ask the healing that boy responded to the prompting of the Lord and prayed for my healing and then God decided to show up and God gets all the glory The natural next question that comes when we're discussing steps of faith is this. What's an appropriate next step for me? And if I'm being honest with you, I have absolutely no idea. There is no way that I can tell you what an appropriate step would be because I don't know your circumstances as well as you do. I don't know your circumstances as well as God does. But this is where community steps in. This community should be the safest place for us to take a step of faith in community. Or take a step of faith in uncertainty. Why? Because I want you to have a better relationship with the Lord. And I hope that you want me to have a better relationship with the Lord. There are so many practical benefits we get from taking steps of faith in community that we've discussed here today. We get anchor experiences that are shared much like the healing of my knee. We get a mutual understanding of God's character, like knowing that he shows no favoritism. We get increased faith because we've seen him work before, it's likely that he'll do it again, and we get deep, deeper relationships with each other and with God as we weigh what isn't and is of him. And these are all beautiful practical benefits of taking steps of faith, but the ultimate purpose beyond all things is that taking steps of faith in community gives us the opportunity to glorify Jesus together. And when we respond in community, he shows up in a way that results in his glory. I'll take a second here just to uh, pray and invite Jairus up. Lord, uh, thank you for today. Uh, Thank you that we're able to just glorify you in our steps of faith uh, and to uh, pursue deeper community together. Um, Lord, I pray for Jairus and his words as he rounds out our series on community that he would just be a blessing to us. Thank you. Amen.
2: Hello? I'm just kidding. What's up guys? Uh, My name is Iris Matthew Copeland. It's good to uh, meet you, see you, talk to you. Um, Like them, I have 10 minutes. We'll see how that goes. Um, uh, If you have to beat traffic, I'll just give you my thesis now. Until the church communicates unity, we will never have true community. I want us to be kind of thinking about that, considering that today. And the fear that I have and sharing with you today is that what I'm about to share, it would resonate with a stranger on the street, outside more than it would reside with the people who religiously stay in this room. And so over the next hour and 45 minutes, I would love if we could talk about and think about how much is community worth to me as well as how much is unity worth to me. Now there's this song, some of you might know it, some of you might not, that's good, it's a sign like there's old people, young people, it's great. Um, it's called Ebony and Ivory. Um, it's made by, she's shaking her head, she knows it. Um, someone, Sheridan, told me no one would know it, so that feels great. Um, it's called Ebony and Ivory, and it's by Stevie Wonder. It's by Paul McCartney. In the first line, it says this, it says, Ebony and Ivory were meant to live together in perfect harmony. And like Ebony and Ivory, we're meant to do that as well. Except there was one little bite and Adam got scared, and then we ended up living naked and afraid, wondering how. How am I meant to do this? How am I supposed to go about this in life? And I think the answer is you're supposed to do it in community. And I think unity is a driving force in that. If you're gonna have unity, unity suggests that we as a body, we as a community, are whole, we're complete. And so I'm going to walk us through the story of the Good Samaritan. You may have heard it before. If you haven't, welcome to church for the first time. Um, I'm going to talk about it in a way, hopefully, that is new, refreshing, and you're just like, man, that kid has so much revelation. That's great. Um, So it's going to be in Luke chapter 10. I think we have slides. We have slides, man. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Um, Sweet. We're going to be in Luke 10. Read it on the screen because I know you don't have the Passion Translation. It's fine. It's fine. Um, Luke 10, verse 25, it says, Just then, a religious scholar stood before Jesus in order to test his doctrines. He posed this question, Teacher, what requirement must I fulfill if I want to live forever in heaven? Those guys asking Jesus, how do I get eternal life? Jesus replied, well, what do you read in the law? How do you understand it? The religious scholar answered, It states, you must love the Lord God with all your heart all your passion, all your energy, and all your, and your every thought. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, that is correct. Now go and do exactly that, and you will live. Wanting to justify himself, he questioned Jesus further, saying, what do you mean by my neighbor? Now I'm going to talk about a little bit of everybody in this story. There are five main characters we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the religious scholar. He's also like a lawyer, essentially. So the lawyer, Jesus, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan are the key people in our story today. And so the lawyer is a smart guy. You might know smart people, but the the problem with the lawyer is he has to be right. Like he he can't actually just be smart, uh, cunning, handsome, all the things he probably is. He has to justify himself in front of even Jesus himself. And so you might have someone you know that needs to be right. I have a friend like that. His name is David. Sometimes he's around here. You may see him. Um, and he is, uh, just has to be right. And like this lawyer, it comes back to bite him. And so this lawyer himself, he's actually quoting scripture in his response to Jesus. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.19, which is the law, meaning all the people around would know what that is. They would know, oh, that's the answer. That's what the law actually says. And so he says this, and Jesus says one thing he like never does for people, and he like answers his question immediately. He's like, that's it. Do that. But like my friend David, he has to be right. So he he pushes it a little further, and he goes, okay, but like, who is my neighbor? And he gives Jesus the vehicle he needs to really drive home, a key point and part of who Jesus is. And so we talk about the Good Samaritan. There's a Jewish man who is beaten up left in the street stripped of his clothes his identity everything about that and what you should know about this is in the story they're traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho so Jerusalem is up here Jericho's down here it's like a going down so like a trip there it's going down one day coming back it's two days which is kind of important so the guy's in the middle of the path and a priest is coming down from where Jerusalem To Jericho. There we go, guys. All right, sweet, you're listening. Um, Yeah, the priest is going down, and he's walking down, and he sees this man, and it says, oh, he crosses the street. The issue with that is it's not like a four-lane highway. It's actually like a donkey barely fitting down road. And so crossing the street doesn't look like he clutched his purse and his pearls and went over there. He actually just went like this and kept walking. And there are a lot of excuses the priest could have, like maybe he had a baby and he named it Esther Grace, and you know that that happens and stuff. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Chris would never do that. Um, and so he's walking down the street, and he goes to the side and he just goes past them. The reality is, Jericho, in relation to Jerusalem, is like Florida to Ohio. It's where all the people have like summer homes, and where they stay when like it's time to go on vacation and stuff. So the likelihood is. This priest is actually going on vacation, and to slow down or stop would cost him time and convenience that he was unwilling to give. And so he continues. Then there's the Levite. The Levite comes, and he works in Jerusalem. Okay, he works in Jerusalem. He goes where? Jericho, you guys are great. Okay, so he walks down, and he does the same exact thing as the priest. And a lot of people give the Levite the excuse of, like, oh, well, he couldn't have helped that man because he would have become unclean. The issue with that is the man, the Levite, he works in Jerusalem, but he's headed to Jericho. So he's clocked out. He's actually not going to the temple. He's not going to work. So that, that excuse of, you know, being unclean doesn't actually hold water. And then there's a third man that comes along, and we don't actually know which direction he's going. It just says he happens upon this man, and he's the Samaritan. And so when Jesus would have said, oh, the Samaritan comes, people would have been like, oh my God, he's a Samaritan. Like it would have been a big deal because Samaritan, that was like them. Like we don't like them. We don't like the Samaritans. So to say that in that setting, it would have been shocking. So the Samaritan comes and he does a number of things. He uses wine to clean the man's wounds. He uses oil to prevent an infection. And then he goes on and he gives him his mule He pays two days' salary to make sure the man can stay and do all these things. And then he, in the midst of this, completely changes all of his plans. He pays time and convenience. And until the church communicates unity, we will never have true community. In verse 37, it continues. And Jesus has explained this whole story probably better than I just did. And the lawyer, he asked him, like, oh, so who in that story do you think has eternal life. Who, who do you think is going to get it? And A lawyer responds in verse 37. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And the thing I want to point out here, if we could leave this up for a second, is the lawyer himself can't actually bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Like, he can't actually name him what he is. He has to say him, that guy, because the Samaritan in relation to the lawyer is them. It's someone who is despicable. He doesn't agree with. He's not, definitely not unified with. And I think a lot of times, you know, we give big them energy ourselves. And I want us to think about who is our them. There's, I mean, I'm looking at the list I have here. There are a million different us versus thems going on right now in our world. There's Democrats and Republicans And we go, oh, who is is your them? There's black versus white, single versus married. Whether you live in a city or you prefer the suburbs, you have a them. Right now, Roe v. Wade is one of the biggest things in the news. I get on Twitter. I don't read the newspaper. It's all over Twitter. And I guarantee there are people in this room who sit on both sides of that issue. And you might just call the other side them. And the one thing I think we need to point out here is that the Samaritan them, for you, whoever that is, the one who is despicable, all these different things, is actually more righteous than our leaders, the people we put our trust in every single day. And so Jesus is actively calling us to be more and more like the people we don't like, the people we disagree with. And we think a lot of times our job as Christians is to convince people that they need to love Jesus. When in fact, it's actually a waste of our time. That's not what we're called to do, actually. We actually just need to remind people that no matter what, he loves them. That it's not a matter of convincing, it's regardless. It's not in spite of, it just is. And consistently, what Jesus is saying is, I'm here for you. And when someone says, oh, I'm deconstructing, all he says is, I'm here for you. When they say, I don't understand my identity, I'm struggling with that, all he says is, I'm here for you. And my fear is a lot of times when people come in contact with Christians or the church or different things, and they say these sorts of statements and things that we don't know how to handle, we don't just say, I'm here for you. We say, like, oh, he can just fix you. He can regulate you. He can conform you. When in actuality, he just wants to be there for them. There's this woman, her name is Diane Langberg, You might be thinking, how do you know who that is? Uh, I follow her on Twitter, that's how I know who she is. And she's a Christian psychologist and she had this to say in a tweet. Um, When you sit with a griever, your work is to be with them where they are, not drag them out where you are more comfortable. And I think, you know, for us in community, When it comes to unity, a lot of times we spend our time taking people to where we're comfortable as opposed to where they actually are. Instead of saying, oh, I'm here for you, we go, yeah, I had a friend one time who this, oh, in my life. When in actuality, all we need to do is just be there for them. And I think until the church communicates unity, we'll never have true community. And that means it's going to cost us our time and convenience. It's actually going to require us to pay something the same way Jesus paid for us. And a lot of times when it comes to unity, we feel like it's some big word when actually Jesus in this verse is just calling us to be like those we may dislike. Show compassion and mercy. What's compassion? It's just empathy with an action step. Oh, I see that. I feel that for you. I'm here with you. I'm now going to do something about it for you, with you, those sorts of things. What is mercy? It's forgiveness towards someone who it's within your power to punish them, right? It's a, it's a neutral power, it can go either way. You have the choice. And so I think when we, it comes to compassion and it comes to mercy, this is something we can all be invited into. The band can come up, I'm done, I'm finishing. Everyone come play music, it's gonna be glorious, hallelujah we can all show more compassion mercy forgiveness three key things that are in community and i think like i've said since the beginning you've heard it a couple times now until the church communicates unity we'll never have true community what i would love is if our community as we're growing in faith the community's growing it's awesome to see great job chris you're killing it um as more people are coming and more people are experiencing this message, it's actually more important that we would display unity, not just amongst ourselves, but in people groups and amongst people. We don't actually know that as we're getting comfortable with friendships and and relationships and house groups, because you should totally be in one, like Mandy said, they're great. I host one too. I don't like hosting it sometimes. And I'm in the community. I have to do that. Like There's compassion and mercy in that for me as well as others. And it's even more important when I just go out in the world. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then they can play. They're going to they're gonna do great. Um, dear Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We lift you up. We magnify you with all of our hearts. And, Lord, we just ask that you would overflow in all of us mercy and compassion, that we would communicate unity in order to strive and push towards true community in your name, in your image, um, intertwined with your spirit, dear Lord. We thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name.